Hi everyone, I'm Cheryl Rose, and this is Maybe, a podcast about the reality of working for social innovation. Stories about uncertainty and risk, about holding big questions and not always having the answers. It's honest conversations about how to think and act in very new ways. My own work has been all about supporting people who engage with that kind of complexity, people with a passion for big change. Wow, but it sure can be hard to keep passion alive when you're working inside those typical big organizations, working to change them because they're really needed to be part of bigger change out in the world. I've had my own experiences working from the inside to shift the way big institutions operate, and I know it can be incredibly frustrating Years ago, I thought my own passion for making a difference would be enough to convince anyone to just make it happen. Well, I found out, often the hard way, that apparently it's just not that easy. And that's what I sometimes still hear from people. People in big businesses, in academic institutions, in large nonprofits, and of course, inside government. I checked in recently with someone who knows exactly what that's like. Derek Maslink's first job out of university was working in the BC government. After a few years, he grew frustrated, and he left to eventually start a grassroots organization on one of the Gulf Islands. It's called the Telenet Centre for Peace and Innovation. But recently, Derek decided to make quite a change, to take a leap. And after two decades working on the outside, he's returned to working within the BC provincial government. First, he had a role in agriculture, but now Derek is the director of innovation methods in the newly established innovation hub within the BC Public Service in Victoria, BC. So you worked in government and then you left and you worked for a lot of time then quite independently in community, really at the grassroots level. So why did you decide to accept a job within government again? Partly because the sector, um, the agriculture sector uh, person that I respect and consider to be a mentor reached out and asked me. So I went into it thinking that I wouldn't actually enjoy it coming back. So I had kind of my own, you know, narrative about my own story about what was it going to be like. So I didn't anticipate it was going to be that positive. Right. But it was an opportunity and somebody that you knew had asked you. And, and so when you first went back in, you were working in the Ministry of Agriculture and now you've moved on to a new position, which we'll talk about in a minute. But um, so there were some things you were worried about in your experience so far, have some of the assumptions that you had about government proved to be true or (laughs) are there some things that you had wrong? I completely had it wrong. That's not what I'd expected. My own experiences in those kinds of rigid, traditional bureaucracies, well, they'd been really frustrating, kind of maddening, and I guess I just assumed that Derek would have some of that kind of experience as well. So I'm a little embarrassed to say that this positive enthusiasm of his, it kind of caught me off guard, and I needed to push him on that a little bit. Can you tell me more about that? Like, what seemed so different to you? I think it was, you know, quite frankly, I think it was me that was different in a lot of respects. Um, Like, just my attitude was different. I had a different mindset, much more patient. I understood kind of better and appreciated the long view. And uh, I think I was just more curious. Um, I guess I 
I develop skills and tools and approaches that made me more effective in that position. And Can you talk about some of those things? I think feeling a bit more courageous, you know, not feeling restricted and realizing that actually I had permission and I actually had a responsibility to do things differently. Um, some of my colleagues felt differently about that, but I felt like I actually had permission to do that. And even though I didn't necessarily have the power to do things, I had the power to bring people together and start getting them to think about the problem differently and also revealing to them the system that in, in which they were engaged in. I think all of us really want to make a difference. And in fact, the people that you're blaming actually do want to help, but yeah. maybe they cannot help for X, Y, and Z. You know, just like you don't have a perspective on what's going on with them, they don't have a perspective on what's going on with you um, so that they care. Right. And, and so I, I found myself as a bit of a translator, a coach, you know, um, giving them uh, a perspective. And it was just, it, uh, I'm kind of getting, uh, getting a bit choked up talking about it, interestingly enough, because it uh, was so empowering. The other thing that happened that was also um, incredibly cool was we went through, you know, um, in recent history, BC's biggest wildfire season. And mm -hmm. I was pulled into that experience and again had this unbelievable experience on the front lines. It was just such a powerful moment for our branch, for the sector. Um, yeah. Yeah. And very helpful to see how, again, how government, you know, which is traditionally thought of as being slow moving and uh, unable to sort of keep up, actually demonstrated the exact opposite. Hmm. Innovative, quick, responsive, adaptive, you know, and, uh, and dealt with a chaotic situation in a very sort of um, effective manner. And now you've moved into this new role. It sounds like it is, in fact, trying to spread even more of that or make the most of the opening and the interest in operating in new ways. And why do you think it's particularly needed in government? You know, one of the reasons that it's needed in government is things are happening. They appear to they feel like they're happening quicker. Um, a lot of the issues that we're facing are more complex. You know, we need to make this place a fantastic place to work where you feel like you're able to do your job uh, and get things done and solve these wicked problems uh, or, uh, or at least move the needle. And so, so creating that environment where we can be more creative, more innovative. innovative. And I think for me, um, what my goal, like what I'm chasing, what I've been chasing for years now, I like watching people come alive. What? Helping people to come alive? Will he tell his bosses that's his big strategy? I mean, I understand how important that is, but does Derek think that's enough if you're really talking about transforming the way government works? So just tell me what you mean by that. Well, people who feel, for whatever reason, and, and you know, and I went through this myself, feeling stuck or things that are not possible or we don't have enough resources, 
and kind of revealing to them or giving them tools or showing the pathways in which they that actually doesn't hold true where they that they realize that they actually have all these resources or these opportunities or ways of doing things differently and they get that spark kind of like i did and i think you know we're facing all sorts of ecological social economic challenges uh massive ones you know ones that we don't know if we will be able to get on top of Mm -hmm. and so we do need an attitude of of possibility of let's roll up our sleeves and see if we can do this. We don't have the luxury anymore of waiting, of, of stewing, <laughs> of being, you know, negative, like, like sitting back. You know, basically what I saw in, in the wildfire is everybody's motivated towards a goal. We might have a different understanding of what that is or how to do that, but we're motivated. We get up, we go to work, we, you know. And we make things happen. We make things happen. Yeah. And so let's say, what would you say to the people who, you know, don't have as great of it as an experience as you've had? Because, you know, clearly there's still change to happen. Yeah. There's still barriers. There's still difficulties. You're not through this shift and change that, you know, we're hoping we'll see more fully within government. If somebody comes up against a real roadblock or finds that they're working with someone that really doesn't get it or if it feels way too slow and they're they're feeling so impatient because they feel the urgency of some issue that they're working on i mean what would you say to those people what what could they do yeah like basically the people like i was 20 years ago yeah well don't let go of that impatience i don't think i think that's helpful to be impatient i mean um, things are broken they need to be fixed and i think actually having that hunger to fix things is is a powerful motivator but don't get stuck in the trap that I was in, which is sort of blaming and negativity. It's find those people who are motivated like you are, that are interested for whatever reason, they may have hit a wall. Um, so they might not know they need this, but they might be at a point where they're more receptive. Yeah. Uh, or find those people that are also kind of on the same page as you and do stuff together. Um, so it's worth keeping on trying. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much, Derek. You're welcome. Thank you for, for inviting me into this conversation. To be honest, Derek's experience in government was a bit surprising to me. His work with others had convinced him that to change government, he needs to focus on, in his words, helping people come alive. His main goal is to ensure that public servants believe that change is possible. He's determined to nurture their sense of excitement and hope. Now I wanted to talk with someone who operates from a different viewpoint, an outside perspective, someone working in community but needing big organizations of all kinds, including government, to shift in order to make big change happen. I made a call to someone who knows change inside and out, Al Atmansky. Al proposed and led the campaign to establish the world's only registered disability savings plan, the Canadian RDSP. His work has made a huge difference for people with disabilities. And to do this, to accomplish this goal, he works strategically with the federal and provincial governments, financial institutions, and many big and small organizations. And, full disclosure, Al was one of my colleagues in the National Social Innovation Generation Initiative. I know Al as a passionate citizen leader a policy advocate, community organizer, and social entrepreneur. 
He's also an author, and his latest book is called Impact, Six Patterns to Spread Your Social Innovation. He lives just outside of Vancouver, B.C. In your book, you talk about these different kinds of innovators who work in different spaces or places in systems and communities. So can you tell me a little bit more about that, about the different kinds of roles that innovators can play? Uh, well, I, I see three types of uh, innovators out there, uh, disruptive innovators, bridging innovators, and receptive innovators. Um, disruptive innovators are... Al told me more about his notion of three different kinds of innovators. There's the disruptive ones. They're creative and come up with brand new ideas for big change. The bridging innovators, important roles in connecting ideas and people across boundaries of all kinds. And then there's the receptive innovators. These are people deep within organizations and systems who are not only willing, but able to move brand new ideas forward. Inside government are a whole group of people who shimmer with the same intensity and uh, imagination as we do. And they've spent often a lifetime in terms of their career understanding how that system works. They know where all the quicksand is, they know where all the roadblocks are, where all the alleyways that don't lead anywhere are. And they also know a lot about timing, about priorities, and about adapting your particular solution or innovation to the language of the system. Well, you know, I just spoke to our friend Derek Maslink, and he's gone back into government, so now he's one of those innovators working within that system. And he said to me that he thinks one of the most important things that he can do is to help the people that he's working with to feel that change is possible. He calls it helping them to come alive. And what do you think, Al? Is that enough to help all of government become more innovative? Well, I have two things to say about that. The first is that innovators in government don't necessarily hang out in hubs and hives and dress as coolly as you and I do, Cheryl, <laughs> but uh, they're uh, surely as uh, creative and ingenious and masterful at bringing good ideas to fruition uh, under really tough circumstances. So I think, I think we need to understand that. And uh, if I have a fear, about social innovation is that it will move past those individuals and not recognize some genuine allies there. But secondly, um, I personally don't think that we're, you know, if, if we are concerned that government isn't innovative enough, that's, that I think generally means that government isn't, you know, responding to the challenges the way we think they should be responding to them. I don't think that will happen without popular support and cultural receptivity for any particular issue. Uh, let's, let's make it poverty uh, or let's make it climate change. If we take either of those two issues and any number of other issues um, to look at some kind of transformation by government as it reacts to those two challenges as opposed to innovative piecemeal efforts which in the long term don't really substantially change the nature of an issue, uh, if we're looking at that broader transformation um, that we want government to be more innovative about, that won't happen unless there is popular support, public support, and cultural receptivity. And that's not a job for government. That's a job for community. That's a job for community organizers. Okay, that. That's not a job for government. That made me pause. 
I'd fallen into that trap of thinking that the problem was way out there, very separate from me, very separate from us. So you're saying that for those of us on the outside and maybe feeling critical, uh, that maybe we need to look back at ourselves and ask ourselves, how much are we making these issues, the ones that government can pay attention to? Or are we just waiting for government to do something about them? I mean, if you want to continue to see government as parent and you want to deposit the solution at their doorstep and then step back and see how well they do with implementation, then, you know, then I suppose you have that expectation that government should change on its own. If you believe, as I do, that a government is the creation of the will of citizens, and it is the job of citizens to inform government in a wholesome way and to be engaged in the democratic process and the policy-making process and the implementation-making uh, process in a much different way than simply depositing it at government's doorstep, then we have a job to do. The reason I wrote my book, Impact, was because I saw in my own career, let alone in the career of colleagues across Canada, a number of brilliant solutions, innovations adopted by government and resulting in minimal or little change. And those innovations becoming orphans, isolated, and their sharp distinctive edges blurred, rounded, and rounded off. And so it is possible to have short-term success with innovation in government, but to really not deal with the roots of the challenge in a way that prevents the issue from not only continuing, but in many cases, increasing. And that's true of homelessness, it's true of abuse of women, it's true of, in my view, of, of poverty, of issues related to people with disabilities, any of the issues related to climate change. So when you talk about innovations that are sometimes put in place by government, and that would be like new policies, new regulations, supports, programs, but they don't really go anywhere, and you call them orphan innovations. And you're referring back to the point that you made earlier, that when change does happen from inside these big bureaucratic systems, sometimes the barrier is still on the outside because our society is actually not willing to live in that new kind of reality where we'd have to face some of our own fears, we'd have to give up some of the things we like, we would have to change in order for that change to get implemented. Uh, well, how far do you think a uh, government a politician would get if uh, she or, or he says, uh, in order for poverty to be solved, in order for us to resolve the divisions related to uh, the pipeline to the West Coast, in order to address, let's say, the full inclusion of people with disabilities in society, you're going to have to make major sacrifices, a Mrs. and Mr. Voter. Hmm. How far do you think they're going to get? You know, it's a real catch-22 that they're in of implementing change while promising that it's going to have minimal impact on your lifestyle and on your pocketbook. But uh, I just can't imagine going forward without some realigning of priorities for the greater good. You're making me think about another comment from Derek when he talked about this incredible experience that he had of working with others 
to battle the worst wildfire crisis that BC has ever seen. Um, and he said he was there and he felt like everybody showed up, all kinds of people from all kinds of places. And government was there too, being adaptive, flexible, collaborative, creative. And for Derek, it was an example of all that is possible when everybody shows up and says, this has just got to happen. And we're going to do whatever it takes because we're just not willing to see this go up in flames. Part of me felt really inspired by that. But another part of me thought, are we going to have to wait till something's on fire right in front of us to really get serious about addressing some of these really big, messy issues? Well, I think it's a very important question. I think that's a key question. I personally don't think it happens uh, only when there's, uh, you know, a forest fire or a flood or an ice storm. They illustrate the power of caring citizens to take action and to take action in combination with their governments. Uh, sometimes encouraging government to move even further. The attention, alas, and sadly, is paid to the more formal examples of intervention and people ignore the fact that the majority of Canadians are caring and that's my interest is tapping into that when that is tapped when we tap into the full power and linking up all of those individual acts when those are linked up that creates the cultural receptivity and the popular support that encourages our politicians to be bold, which then in turn licenses the public service and people like Derek to get on and do the job they know to do. You know, I thought this podcast was about how to get big bureaucracies like government to change themselves so that they could support urgently needed change out in society. But when I asked very experienced people like Derek and Al about this, they both brought it back to individuals. Derek says that keeping passion and hope alive in people working inside bureaucracies is the key for those organizational systems to be able to do all that's needed for change. Al says that won't be enough. Not unless most of us on the outside, in community, commit to really big shifts in our own lives. He insists that we need a social transformation where individuals will make the sacrifices required to implement these kinds of changes that we say that we want in our world. Look, change is needed inside our large social institutions, like in government, universities, and businesses. But maybe that will only really happen when enough of us look inside ourselves and commit to all that it will take to accept and live together in a radically different world. Whether you're working for change on the inside or the outside or somewhere in between, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you'll pay attention to the questions that it brings up for you. For me, it's already started some serious soul searching. Thank you to my guests on today's episode of Maybe, Derek Masselink, Director of Innovation Methods in the BC Government, and Alec Mansky, distinguished Canadian, author, and accomplished agent for social change. Molly Siegel is my podcast coach and co-producer. Banff Center's practicum Esther Gad gave post-production support. 
the Getting to Maybe Social Innovation Residency at the BAMP Center and all the people who've been involved in it are the inspiration for this podcast series. Derek Masalink is a past participant, and Al Atmansky has been a special guest speaker and mentor in our program. I want to acknowledge that Banff is located on Treaty 7 territory, the traditional lands of the Blackfoot, Stony Nakoda, and Sutina First Nations. I hope you'll be able to join me next time for another story about the complexities of working for social innovation. Another story about getting just a little bit closer to maybe. Maybe.